Our sermon text for this morning is Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 6 through chapter 4 and verse 4. The sermon is entitled, The Lord, the Lord Calls to Repentance. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's living and active Word? The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion." And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights is heard, the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they have perverted their way. They have forgotten the Lord, their God. 
Return, O faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly, the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth, the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in our shame and let, a, let our dishonor cover us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to hear your word read and preached this morning, we do indeed pray that you would give to us ears to hear the voice of our faithful shepherd. Speak to us, we pray. We hear many voices in the course of a week, but the one voice we need to hear above all others is the voice of our faithful shepherd leading us out to pasture. Father, we pray that you would indeed lay us down in green pastures and beside still waters as your word is preached. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, this morning we continue our new series through Jeremiah. In chapter 1, if you recall, we saw how the Lord called Jeremiah to be his prophet during the last year of the reign of King Josiah, which would have been 627 B.C., and that Jeremiah would continue his prophetic ministry uh, for the next 40 years until the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians under the reign of King Zedekiah in 587 B.C. In chapter 1 and verse 5, God told Jeremiah that he was appointing him to be a prophet to the nations. And so while Jeremiah's prophecies are most directly about Israel and Judah, about the covenant people of God, the old covenant church, nonetheless, they also involve all the nations and thus are a demonstration of God's absolute sovereignty over His creation. As the Lord told Jeremiah in chapter 1 in verses 9 through 10, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Last week in chapter 2, we saw Jeremiah in action for the first time as the Lord commanded him to go up to Jerusalem and to proclaim his word in the hearing of the people. It was a word of judgment, a hard word, a word of judgment as the Lord brought his case 
against his adulterous wife Israel. You remember transitioning from a warm opening in which he remembered their honeymoon during the Exodus to a cold bill of divorce against her in the end. And so what changed in between? Well, it wasn't the Lord. He didn't change. The Lord is unchangeable. He remained perfectly faithful to His bride Israel. But they did not. She did not. They turned away from Him and worshipped false gods. So in our text for this morning, we find the Lord delivering yet another word to His covenant people. And this time, He calls them to true repentance, promising them restoration. And we'll divide our text into three sections. The first, chapter 3 and verses 6 through 11, where we see a comparison. The second, chapter 3 and verses 12 through 18, where we see a command. And then the third, chapter 3 and verse 19 through chapter 4 and verse 4, where we see a challenge. So we have a comparison, a command, and a challenge. Let's begin there in that first section, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, where we see a comparison. Look again at verse 6. The text says, The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did? That faithless one, Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. The first several chapters of Jeremiah contain prophecies that he delivered during the early days of his ministry, in the days of King Josiah, indeed in the final year of King Josiah's reign, just after the Lord called Jeremiah to his prophetic ministry. And that's important to remember. The political and spiritual context of Jeremiah's ministry is one of radical upheaval after a long period of spiritual decline. Nearly 100 years before Jeremiah, during the reign of King Hezekiah in Judah to the south, with Israel to the north in severe decline, the Lord permitted the Assyrians to conquer the northern capital of Samaria. Israel to the north was conquered, and her citizens were enslaved and exiled in Assyria. That's the time that the Lord now reflects upon as He asked Jeremiah, have you seen, have you seen what she did? It's interesting that this oracle begins with such remembrance. That's exactly how the Lord began His first oracle, you remember from last week in chapter 2 and verses 2 through 3. But whereas in that first oracle, the Lord led Jeremiah to remember a time in which things were good, He now has him remember one of the worst times in redemptive history. Have you seen what she did? That faithless one Israel, how she went up on every high hill and under every green tree and there played the whore. Now the root, the root of the Hebrew word that's translated faithless here, faithless Israel means to turn to turn. It's the same word that's translated repent and return throughout this oracle. It's used 15 times throughout these verses. Because Israel and Judah have turned away from the Lord in their idolatry, they are now, the Lord says, in a perpetual state of turning with no stability. 
They are like a wheel that has lost traction. It's turning and there's no stability. They've forsaken the one who never turns, but remains ever faithful to them. And so they find themselves in a condition of perpetual turning, perpetual chaos, spiritual decline, going this way and that way, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The Lord asked Jeremiah if he has seen what turning or faithless Israel did. Have you seen what that turning Israel has done? And he describes what she did. She went up on every high hill, he says, and under every green tree, and there played the whore. In other words, Israel entered into the idolatry of Canaanite worship. You remember when God led His people into the promised land, one reason why He commanded them to purge the land of its inhabitants was that the land might be purified so that it might not be overrun with with pagan worship and they might be then tempted to turn away from the worship of the one true and living God. God expected His people to be set apart and holy, not like the nations around them, but at this point in their history, they're indistinguishable from the nations around them. They've become thoroughly Canaanized. They're, it's as if they're the Canaanites who were there in the first place. Israel worshipped Baal, the fertility god, through cultic prostitution. And so that's where the imagery of going up on the high hill and and playing the whore, that all that comes in with that cultic prostitution that was happening in the worship of Baal. Look at verse 7. The Lord continues saying, And I thought, after she's done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Again, the Lord makes a play on the word turn here. Of course, the Lord knows the end from the beginning. Nothing takes Him by surprise, but He describes Himself in human-like terms, ascribing to Himself or imputing to Himself human-like passions, saying He was like a husband who, though his wife had gone after another man, he thought to himself, perhaps, perhaps she'll return. She'll come back to me. But he says she did not return. She continued in her sin and after, after suffering much discipline for it, over the course of generations, she became more and more hardened in her sin. But not only did she do this, the Lord says, her treacherous sister Judah in the south saw it. She saw it happening. So the Lord now presses the family metaphor even further. He pictures Israel and Judah as sisters and having seen Israel's idolatry and the judgment that she heaped upon herself through it. He thinks surely Judah would learn from her and not follow after her pattern. But look at verses 8 through 10. The text says, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played 
the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. The thematic connection with the previous oracle now becomes quite evident. In chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5, if you remember from last week, the Lord issued His bill of divorce to Israel. And now He says that He sent her away with a decree of divorce, meaning He sent her into Assyria. He expelled her from the land. He sent her into exile to be enslaved by the Assyrians. And yet... Yet, her treacherous sister Judah, having seen all of this transpire, did not fear. Did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. Rather than learning a lesson from Israel, Judah committed the same idolatry. Historically, of course, that happened during the reign of King Manasseh in the south. Manasseh was the son of King Hezekiah. Assyria conquered Israel during the reign of King Hezekiah, which got Hezekiah's attention. And Hezekiah, by the grace of God, repented before the Lord and led led Judah in a series of what eventually became evidently a series of half-hearted and short-lived reforms. All the reforms of Hezekiah were overturned by Manasseh in short order. And Judah sunk into the most serious spiritual decline of its history. And that decline continued until Jeremiah's day and the reign of King Josiah. And during the reign of King Josiah, the law of God, you remember, was rediscovered in the temple. Josiah read that law and instituted spiritual reforms throughout the land. He also called upon any Israelites who were left behind in the conquered northern kingdom to migrate to Judah for refuge. But like his father before him, Hezekiah, Josiah's reforms were also half-hearted and short-lived on the national scale. Though Josiah's heart had been turned to the Lord, the majority of the population in Judah, their hearts had not been turned to the Lord. And while they were happy to placate their king for a time, they continued to remember the old ways. And they longed to return to Egypt, as it were. They longed to return to their idolatry, to their sin. This is the historical context in which the Lord now speaks through Jeremiah. Josiah's in his last year as king of Judah, and his reforms are about to be exposed as half-hearted, a half-measure, which is why the Lord now says, yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. And in verse 11, the Lord brings the full weight of His judge's gavel down upon the pride of Judah. 
The text says, And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. What a pronouncement. What a verdict. The reasoning of the Lord's argument here is much like that which He uses through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. After, of course, condemning the Gentiles in their sin in chapter 1 and verses 18 and following. One can imagine as Paul preached that message before the synagogues, one can imagine the young Pharisee in the congregation hearing Paul condemning the Gentiles for their sin. And he begins to shake his head in agreement. Yes, yes, they should be condemned. And then the apostle turns in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Romans to the self-righteous Pharisee wagging his head and says, therefore you have no excuse. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now we know Paul, like the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't mean we should never judge another person at all or discern whether they are living in sin or not. Christian life would be impossible apart from those sorts of judgments. But what he means is you should not judge self-righteously. Looking down your nose as if you're better because you figured it out in your own wisdom and power you see. But instead, and he's going to get to this in chapter 3 of Romans, you remember, remember the grace of God. This free gift that you have received. Though you didn't deserve it, God granted you His grace. We see that same kind of, of logic here in the text before us. Judah, Judah thought she was superior to Israel. The temple was on Mount Zion in Judah. The city of David was in Judah. God made promises to David and to his offspring. Judah thought she was superior to Israel to the north. But the Lord judges with a righteous judgment. And he tells her that in fact, her sin was worse than her sister Israel's sin because she had the example of Israel to forewarn her. And yet she did not take the lesson. Instead, she only turned away from the Lord with her eyes wide open. And to make matters worse, to make matters worse, she pretended to repent and reform her ways under Josiah. But the Lord sees through the pretense. It's not possible. It's not possible to hide anything from the Lord. It's not possible to pretend and think the Lord will buy it. The Lord sees through the pretense. The Lord looks on the heart and He finds Judah wanting. And that brings us to the second section, chapter 3, verses 12 through 18, where we see a command. So we go from the comparison, the comparison between Israel and Judah to a command. Look at verse 12. The text says, Go and proclaim these words to the, toward the north and say, Return, O faithless Israel, 
declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. The Lord now suddenly changes His message from one of condemnation to one of restoration. Through Jeremiah, who prophesies toward the north, he calls turning or faithless Israel to turn again, to return to him. And he assures her that while he has looked on her with anger for a time, quite clearly, he sent his judgment upon her through the Assyrians. Nonetheless, he will not look on her with anger forever. After all, He is merciful toward her. We see two attributes of God in this passage, beloved. We see, of course, the anger of God set alongside the mercy of God. As we think about the attributes of God, there are different ways to categorize them. But anger anger is not, properly speaking, an attribute of God. In other words, it doesn't belong to the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable character of God. A good way to think about divine anger is by using the relative absolute distinction in divine attributes. We see this distinction in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, on the doctrine of God, in paragraphs 1 and 2. Paragraph 1, focusing upon the absolute attributes of God. Paragraph 2, focusing upon the relative attributes of God. Anger is a relative attribute of God. It is is His way of revealing Himself to us by framing Himself according to our relationship to Him. It's not an absolute attribute. It's not His essence. It teaches us something about His essence. His anger teaches us about His holiness, which is an essential attribute, an absolute attribute of God. It teaches us about His holiness relative to our sin. Mercy is similar. Mercy is also a relative attribute. God's mercy is His way of revealing His goodness, His love to us relative to our sin. And here the Lord tells His people that in His anger, He has not forgotten His mercy. And so He invites her back to himself with open arms. Though he has issued a decree of divorce and sent her away, he says it's not over yet. Look at verse 13. He says, Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. The Lord now lays out the path by which Israel might return to Him, might turn once again to Him. And that path is the grace of repentance. If Israel will return to the Lord, she must acknowledge or confess her guilt that she rebelled against Him by worshiping false gods and refusing to obey His voice. That seems so easy, doesn't it, beloved? Just admit you're wrong. Admit you're wrong and flee to me. Cast yourself upon me for I am merciful. I'm ready to receive you. It seems so easy. But as Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther 
said about saving faith, we might also say about repentance, it is the hardest work. Isn't that good? Saving faith is the hardest work. Of course, Luther doesn't mean that faith is a work. What he means is, if a person is to come to saving faith, it's only by virtue of the work of God in their souls. Like saving faith, repentance is a gift of God's grace. It's impossible for any sinner to repent in his own power. And why? Well, because the sinner loves himself. He loves his own glory above all else. That's the essence of sin. The essence of sin is love of self, idolatry of self. It's to attempt to make oneself one's own God. And everyone knows that in order to be God, you must always be right. So how could such a person ever say, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. How could such a person ever truly repent? And of course the answer is they can't because they won't. They'll never desire it. The most they can do is feign it. The most they can do is begin to think, well, if God requires that I repent by just saying these magic words and then everything will be okay for me, I can do that. But that's not true repentance. That's pretense. The one who is still bound by his sin can only go through the motions of repentance. They might say the right words, but they can't actually submit themselves to God while their hearts remain far from Him. Nonetheless, if any sinner would be saved, if any sinner would be saved, this is the only path available to him. That of repentance. He must acknowledge and confess his guilt and his sins and throw himself upon the mercy of the God who has promised never to turn away from anyone who truly repents. My favorite passage of the Westminster Standards captures this principle well. It comes from chapter 15 of the Confession of Faith and paragraph 4. And that paragraph is very short. It's a single sentence, and it says this, As there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. Isn't that good? Look at verses 14 through 18. The text continues, Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. So the Lord now uses a a father-son analogy to describe His relationship with His people, calling them faithless 
or turning children. The Hebrew could be translated, turn again, O turning children, declares the Lord. He also uses a a master-slave analogy here, calling himself their master. If they will return to him, he promises to conduct a new but smaller-scale exodus, taking them from the cities of Assyria to the north in ones, in twos, and returning them to Zion. And notice that, beloved. He doesn't say he will return them to Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. He says he'll return them to Zion, that is, to Jerusalem. He also promises to give them leaders or shepherds after his own heart, which is a reference back to the time of David when the kingdom was still undivided. David was, of course, that man after God's own heart. These shepherds will actually feed them with knowledge and understanding rather than myths and ignorance. Further, he promises that they will multiply and be fruitful in the land, a reference back to the command that God gave to Adam under the covenant of works in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. You remember he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's a blessing that Adam forfeited when he rebelled against God and ate the forbidden fruit. And once they have multiplied, once they've been fruitful, he promises, they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. Jerusalem, the city, shall be called the throne of the Lord. Now that is quite interesting. The promise God now makes involves a radical change within the worship of Israel. It involves a radical change in the use of the Mosaic law. The Ark of the Covenant was understood to be the earthly throne of God. It represented the presence of God among His people. It was the place on which that special presence sat in the most holy place of the tabernacle and then later, of course, the temple. But the restoration that God now promises to Israel involves such a radical change that He says the ark will no longer be remembered or rebuilt. It seems like an impossible kind of change. But instead, He says, the whole city of Jerusalem will be the throne of the Lord. And this is not simply for the sake of Israel. Notice, notice what the Lord says in verse 17, and all the nations shall gather to it. God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. Here's an example of that prophetic ministry. All the nations shall gather to it. Moreover, He promises At that time, His people will no longer follow their own evil heart. In other words, they'll be truly sanctified. They will be, in the most ultimate sense, perfected in glory. And finally, He envisions Judah joining with Israel as the Lord gathers them from the land to the north to give them His own land. We have to remember this prophecy was prophesied well before, 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem. 
And yet God is now saying through His prophet Jeremiah, Judah, I will cause you to return again to the land, which means what? I'm going to cast you out of the land. He's not said that in as many words here. But that's the implication. You will be cast out of the land, but, but I will bring you back. And so in this promise, beloved, we, of restoration, we find a kind of multi-layered prophecy. The first layer is the most immediate. The Lord will in due course of time lead a faithful remnant from Israel out of the land of Assyria and back to the land of promise, and He will do the same with Judah, leading a faithful remnant out of the land of Babylon 70 years after Jerusalem falls to Nebuchadnezzar. And so what we find in this prophecy is that while it begins with Israel, which has already been exiled into Assyria at the time of this prophecy's preaching, Judah, which has not yet been exiled into Babylon, is also included. This prophecy of restoration therefore assumes the judgment that is coming against Judah through Babylon. That's the most immediate layer of the prophecy. But there's another layer that's less immediate but more ultimate. Clearly what the Lord promises here is not and could not be fulfilled under the terms of the Old Covenant. What God promises is the advent of the New Covenant through the coming of the Messiah. Jeremiah doesn't use those words, but by inference, by good and necessary inference, he must mean it. For example, the doing away with the Ark of the Covenant is unthinkable in the Old Covenant system. It's the centerpiece of the Old Covenant system of worship. But that is part of the New Covenant which Jesus inaugurated at His first coming. There is no longer any need for such an earthly copy of the throne of God because Christ has entered the heavenly original and has made His church the dwelling place of God on earth. The humanity of the incarnate Son has become the new Ark of the Covenant. Jeremiah describes this change in terms of the whole city of Jerusalem becoming the dwelling place of God with His people and His people being set free from sin's power altogether. In a sense, this is a present reality for the new covenant church. Beloved, we are the nations that have flocked to Jerusalem to worship the Lord this morning. But this Jerusalem is not on earth. We don't make pilgrimage to a Jerusalem on earth, but we make pilgrimage to the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where we are seated with Christ in the heavenly place to worship with Him, or worship Him, I should say, even now. And so the Jerusalem that's in view here is the new Jerusalem. It is heaven itself. The author of Hebrews speaks this way in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 10 when he says of Abraham that Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then later he says, but, it, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And that brings us to the third and final layer of this prophecy. That city which is heaven will one day come to earth. 
earth will be heavenized, as it were. John prophesies about this in Revelation chapter 21, in verses 2 through 4, when he says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's at this time that we, beloved, will be fully set free from sin altogether to enjoy the presence of God in glory forever. This is what we find embedded in this hard word from the Lord to His people. He has not forgotten His mercy. In His anger, He has not forgotten His mercy, but He has a longer-term plan in view that involves you. And you are evidence of the fulfillment of that plan. The new covenant administration after the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the outpoured Spirit where we make pilgrimage into heaven as a kingdom of priests every time we gather for worship. Getting a foretaste of that eternal inheritance that's laid up for us which will one day come to earth when faith becomes sight and we are openly acquitted before all at the judgment through the grace and mercy of our God. And we are made like Him and know Him even as He knows us. And that brings us to the third and final section, chapter 3, verses, verse 19 through chapter 4 and verse 4 where we see a challenge. Looking in at verses th- or chapter 3, verses 19 through 25, text says, I said how I, sh- I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations, And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. A voice on the bare heights has heard the weeping and pleading of Israel's sons because they've perverted their way. They've forgotten the Lord their God. Return, O faithless ones, faithless sons. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you. For you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. But from our youth the shameful thing has devoured all for which our fathers labored, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters. Let us lie down in in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. So the Lord now reflects upon the fact that He's been patient with His people for generations, even sending prophets to call them to return to Him. And while His people have said all the right things, their repentance has been half-hearted, which is evidenced by their lifestyles. And so the Lord makes one final plea with His people, challenging both Israel and Judah to produce works in keeping with genuine repentance. Look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He says, If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, 
in justice and in righteousness. Then the nation shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. As we saw last week, beloved, ultimately the problem with Judah at this stage in her history was her heart. Her heart. The hearts of God's covenant people remained by and large uncircumcised. In other words, they remained unregenerate like the pagan nations around them and therefore their hearts were not fertile soil where the seed of His Word could fall and take root, but they were fallow ground filled with thorns. And the only hope for such a condition is the grace and the mercy of God. He's the only one who can circumcise the heart. No creature can circumcise the heart. Only God can circumcise the heart. And He does that through your effectual calling. And so I ask you this morning, have you been thus called? Have you been effectually called? Have you been granted the grace of true repentance, of true saving faith in the Lord God? Repentance isn't simply a one-time act. Repentance is an ongoing lifestyle for the Christian. You are either turning to the Lord on a regular basis, casting yourself upon His mercy in Christ, grieving over your sin and learning to hate it more and more, or you are turning, turning, turning in the wind with no stability, no purpose, and no meaning, with nothing but love for self motivating you at every turn. And don't miss this, beloved. That's the tragedy of sin. Sin keeps you from being able to truly love another. Sin focuses you inward so that you're only able to think about yourself ultimately. The one bound by his sin the one who can only think of himself and what's good for him might make a good businessman, but he makes a horrible friend, a horrible spouse, a horrible brother or sister. But the Lord remains merciful still. And the Lord holds open His arms, calling all who will to turn back to Him, to cease from that perpetual turning, revolving around oneself, as if you yourself are the center of everything. 
And so nothing but revolution after revolution, seeking to manipulate this person, that person to get what I want. The only way to be set free from that cycle of sin is by the grace of God having your heart circumcised so that you turn from your sin to Christ. That's the turning that leads to eternal life. So I call you this morning to turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word. We give You praise for the prophet who prophesied so long ago. For all it has to teach us about our sin and about Your great grace and mercy. And, and Father, the, the solution that You have provided for our problem, the healing that You have granted in the Lord Jesus Christ and the outpoured Holy Spirit. We pray that You indeed uh, would be the physician, the good physician in our souls. That You might continue to do that work of sanctification uh, to the end, perfecting us, fitting us for the glory to come on the last day. We thank You for this time in which we have entered into Your presence in the, in the new Jerusalem in which You have spoken Your words to us. And Father, we pray that You would make our hearts fertile soil, that Your Word might fall into them and produce much fruit to Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen.